So good morning. This is working. Good morning. So it's good to be with you. I um, want to remind you that the reason Doug's not up here this morning is that he's eating. He's back here somewhere. And uh, that he's preaching Sunday. And so when he's preaching, we try not to give him double duty. And so someone else teaches on Friday morning. That someone else happens to be me today. Uh, but also, we could be praying for Doug as he's facing a double hip replacement on Tuesday. Uh, so we're going to be calling him uh, Doug Two Hips Bun after that because he's going to have two brand new ones. Next time he's coming up here, he'll probably just leap from the floor all the way up to stage. He'll be like Superman. And uh, it's a good thing for him. He's kind of a young man to be doing that, as it said. Um, I had to go to the doctor, had torn some meniscus in my knee, and went to the doctor and asked him, so, you know, what happened? He said, well, what did you do? I said, I didn't do anything. He said, well, that's called um, injury by overuse. I said, but I didn't do anything. He said, yeah, well, you walk, don't you? I said, well, yeah, I do walk. So there you go. So what are you saying? <laughs> I'm saying he said, I'm saying you're old. <laughs> that's exactly what he's saying. <laughs> so thank you very much, doctor. It's one of those visits where you go to the doctor and he's going through my list of, you know, possible ailments. What is it about doctors that they think that they need to, every time I visit, he has to tell me everything that could possibly go wrong with me. And we re revisit that every single time. It's like, don't you remember? I remember this all too well, that I've got a propensity for this, this, and this. And so this time he just said, oh, yeah, and you had some skin cancer removed in 2016. And he took a look at my face and said, you're going to have a whole lot more of that. <laughs> I'm thinking about switching doctors. I think it might be the right thing to do. Well, this morning we're going to look in second, or First Peter chapter 2, just a couple verses as we, as we see Peter addresses a subject really that has a lot to do with us in a kind of an indirect way. Um, and I'm not just talking about the, the, the obsession we have with football, particularly this weekend, which is perhaps one thing that if Peter were around he would address. Uh, but there's some other things that that we do as Christians, and particularly as North American Christians, and I think it might be a, a thing that particularly men fall into the trap of, and we're going to address that as we look at what Peter says in just a few verses. So we're only going to look at three verses this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, but it follows right along, as we'll see, with what Doug was preaching the last two weeks. So let me read these verses. 1 Peter 2, verses 1 to 3, this is what he writes. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. First thing you can't miss is that he starts with this little word called so, which is another way to say therefore. So as Doug reminded us last week, we need to take that word and go backwards in the text and see what it is that he's basing his next statement on because he's saying, therefore, based on what I've just said, do this. And there is an imperative in these three verses. It looks like several, but there's one central one, and it's kind of an interesting one. It's a different command. Peter's actually commanding something that most of us would say, would say I can't control that. How can he command that if I can't control that? We'll see with that in a minute. So he says, so, because, therefore, because of what I've just said, and what has he said? Well, if we go back to some previous verses, particularly the ones right before that, and they'll be up on the screen as well. 
verses 13, or excuse me, 23 to 25 and the first chapter of Acts, I'm going to go back to 22, where he says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word, then this word is the good news that was preached to you. So Peter says, because I've said this, there's some things you need to do. Well, what did I just say? If we wanted to look at that, what did he say? He said, as, as Doug was reminding us, that if we're in Christ, we have been born again. We are indeed new men. <laughs> when it was asked this morning, any new men here, I was thinking, well, we all better stand up if we're in Christ because we're new men. We have been born again. We have been changed from the inside out. God has done an active work in us. We call it salvation. That's what he's done. And because of that and the way he's done it, it impacts the way we live. How did he do it? Peter makes it clear several ways. He says it. He did it through the living and abiding word of God, the imperishable seed that's been planted in us, what God has done through his word, giving us life. This life-giving word has entered into us, so much so that we can have complete confidence in the future. We have an unshakable hope that we are sure that we are going to last forever, even unto eternity, as the scripture might say. We can know that because it's the word planted in us. It's the life-giving word that has been entered into our lives, born again. And so because of that, Peter goes on to say, chapter 2, verse 1, so put away some things. Get rid of some things in your life. Why should we get rid of things? Well, if we go back again, and we won't have to flip back and forth, Matt, on the screen. It's, you can leave up chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. But one of the things that Peter has said is that because we've been born again, we love one another earnestly from a pure heart. If I'm going to love someone else in the faith, or any, any, even outside the faith, for me to love earnestly and with a pure heart, there's some things I'm going to have to get rid of inside of me to do that. There's some things that aren't going to be compatible with me loving someone else. There's a list here of some of those things. This is what they are, malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. And that's, that's not an exhaustive list of the things I may have to get rid of to love someone. In other words, I've got more vices than that, and you probably do too. And that's an interesting list, and you first look at that list, and for me at least, it's, it, they almost look the same. They're words that, that almost kind of join together. They're just bad, evil kind of words. It's hard to distinguish maybe at first the meaning of them. Kind of reminds me of my, my first job. The first job I ever had was a one-day job that I got paid for anyway. My next-door neighbor asked me to go to work with him one day. I was 15. And so he said, you can tag along. I'll pay you to work with me today. Well, he was a distributor of pantyhose. They were called legs. They came in this little plastic egg. So L-E-G-G-S, legs. Maybe you've heard of them if your wife ever used them or my sister. She used them. I remember playing with little plastic eggs when I was a kid that she would have from her pantyhose. Well, my neighbor said, come alongside. I'm going to, I got to make some deliveries. So I got to ride in the truck with him. That was pretty cool. And go to the grocery store and refill the, the, the kiosk with the different pantyhose, the little plastic eggs that had pantyhose in them. 
Then the afternoon, after we grabbed a bite to eat, he put me in a warehouse, big room, almost as big as this, dimly lit, nothing in it except one barrel and two boxes. No, actually four boxes, I think about it. The barrel was filled with pantyhose. They, they had somehow escaped their plastic eggs. They were just piled in there, hundreds of pairs of pantyhose. And he said, what I need you to do for this afternoon is to take all these out and separate them by color. Dimly lit warehouse, separating pantyhose by color. You know, I'd seen pantyhose, of course. I have a mother and a sister at home. I knew that. But it's kind of hard to distinguish the difference between ecru and beige and tan and nude. So I spent hours, and I remember after about two or three hours, I couldn't tell the difference by anything. I just sort of grabbed them and think, I don't know, that box, and I don't know, that box. And I, I finished, and I never went back to work there again, because I know I got none of them right. <laughs> well, sometimes you look at a list like these vices in, in 1 Peter 2, and you think, wow, they kind of look the same. They sound the same. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. What's the difference? Does it matter? And well... It does matter in that if I'm harboring any of these types of vices in my soul and I'm trying to love someone else, it's going to be a a hindrance in me to do that. So what are these things? What is this list? What does it mean that I might be harboring something like, well, malice? Well, if I've got malice in my heart against someone, that usually indicates that I have a desire to hurt them, to cause them some harm. I have malice toward them. There's probably some malice between a couple different football teams this weekend, some malice between the cities of the rep- represented by those teams. There's, there's intent to harm. But not only that, I could be struggling with guile, which is that desire similarly to gain some advantage over someone else, but to do it in such a way that I position myself above them and deceive them and me in the process. That's kind of what guile can be. So I can have malice and I can have guile. Hypocrisy, we kind of understand that a little better, that that sense of being almost two-faced, that I can be something that I'm not, excuse me, and usually for what it will gain me, and I don't really have a desire to be known for who I really am. That's hypocrisy. Envy, that's my desire to have a privilege that you have. (laughs) I only desire that privilege. I'm kind of driven by resentment because you haven't and I don't. That could be a good description of envy. And then slander is when I take all those kind of vices, put them together, and then start talking about you (laughs) and put you down so I can somehow be put, brought up, slandering someone else. And that's usually driven, again, by really a deeper sense of my own failings, not wanting you to see that, but wanting to be seen as in a better light than maybe I really am. So Peter says, if we're going to love one another earnestly with a sincere love, we we can't harbor those things. And so he says, get rid of them. But that's not the key imperative in these three verses, I don't think. I think there's a different one. Excuse me. Let me get some water. This different one is found in in chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Long for pure spiritual milk. Well, that word long in the Greek, it's a very imperative word. Um, In fact, if you look in an interlinear Bible, you might find that the word has 
got a, a, a translation, a transliteration from the Greek into English, and it might say long or it might say desire, but it probably has an exclamation point behind it. It's a way of emphasizing how strong a word it is in the original language. It might be better for us to think of the word crave. Crave pure spiritual milk. Think of the things that we might crave as adult men. Milk, probably not high on the list. In spite of the fact that many, uh, many a milk producer might be trying to convince us that we need it in our lives. Most of us don't think of milk as the thing, the beverage of choice. It hasn't been for a while. Maybe when you were growing up, milk was it. If you went to college, you found there was a favorite golden beverage, not a white one. And from there on, maybe milk never revisited your favorite list. But it says, crave it. Crave a pure spiritual milk. What does that really mean for us? Well, what it, what it means is that there's something that we need so desperately, Peter says, that we should be doing everything we can to get it into our lives. Why is that? Well, this is how he says it. Like newborn infants. So he uses this analogy. Like that, we should desire, long for, crave this thing called pure spiritual milk. What does he have in mind? Well, in the context, you'd almost, you have to, again, go backwards to, to get the context. What's he been talking about in the previous verses? He's been talking about God's Word. He's been talking about the imperishable seed, the abiding Word of God, this Word that changes our lives, it gives us life. But then specifically, the last verse in chapter 1, he says this, and this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So what is this pure spiritual milk that we need to be craving more than anything else? Like, like a newborn infant craves milk? The only thing they really need and want is milk? A little affection, but milk? It's the Word of God. It's the Gospel. It's God's goodness, His graciousness towards us and the good news of Jesus Christ. Because he goes on to say in the rest of that verse that by it, by this pure spiritual milk, by God's Word, you may grow up into salvation. So we understand from Peter's standpoint that he believes the thing that Christians need more than anything else is the Word of God in their lives. And he's not just talking about brand new baby Christians. We might think that because he uses this term like newborn infants or like newborn babies. So we might think, well, yeah, if you're a brand new believer, you do need God's Word poured into your life. You need to understand it and read it and get it into you, and that's how you grow, and you, under, you get that. And maybe when you came to faith, you were hungry to understand the Word. When I became a believer in high school, I did not come out of a church family, so I did not know the Bible. I had a Bible. I didn't read it. Every now and then I remember looking at the pictures in it, but I didn't read it. I didn't know what book was in the Bible and what wasn't. I had never read a full gospel. I didn't know most of the characters. So when I became a Christian, when Christ gave me faith in him and brought me to life, suddenly there was this book that became important to me. I remember it was in the 70s that I became a believer, 1970-ish. So they, someone in the church where I became a Christian in Virginia Beach, they gave me or told me to get uh, a living Bible. That was the new paraphrase that had just come out. Maybe some of you remember it. It came in this big padded green cover. It had like cushion under it. So I remember getting one of those, and I don't remember how I got it, but I don't ever remember going to a store to get it, so I think someone gave it to me at church. And brought it home, and I, I didn't have any book that was padded. I mean, 
textbooks in high school weren't padded. <laughs> so it was kind of different already. And I opened it up, and I, you, know, you just don't see books like this. It has verse numbers. It's nothing but text. It has lots of books within one book. And I just didn't know where to start. So you start in Genesis, and you start reading, which is really fascinating reading for the first part of Genesis, no doubt. And like anybody who reads the Old Testament for the first, second, maybe 10th, 12th time, whenever you get to certain parts of the Old Testament, unless you're beginning to get a sense of, of Old Testament history and what the Jews were like and what God's covenant meant, boy, I didn't understand Leviticus, except there's a lot of things you better not be doing, but most of that stuff I didn't even know how to do. So I, don't, I didn't think I was in a great threat. So I began to skip through that part came to Psalm 23, and that was one I had heard before, and then kept going and going and going, and, and as I was hearing the word preached on Sunday mornings, because I started to go to church and every Sunday, then I began to find new parts of Scripture. I'd follow the passage, and then during the week, I remember even as a high school junior, I would sometimes read that passage that the pastor had preached on during the week and try to figure out what it really meant. And sometimes if I, there was a cross-reference and I could figure that out, I'd look at that. The whole point is that it was, it was all new. It was kind of fun. It was exploring. There was something new in this book, and it seemed to speak to life. And, and as I heard it explained, I didn't understand what was going on, but the Holy Spirit was using the Bible to bring life to me. Later, when I was working with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, I remember doing conferences that we called Bible in Life. It was a two-day conference. We'd do it a Friday night, Saturday, and we'd invite students from area colleges to come. And we would, we would just start it by having a Bible and opening it up and saying, we're going to spend the next eight hours or so talking about this book, but it's more than that. In fact, we gave them a warning, like this is the Surgeon General's warning. <laughs> you know, if you take this in your hand and you begin to put it in you, be careful. It's going to change you. There's something in this book more than words. It's the Word of God. It's living and active, and you won't be the same. Well, we can, maybe you can remember that kind of feeling as an early or newer believer, or maybe a period in your life where you, were, you sensed God was growing you. But guys, we know that there are times, too, when the Word seems kind of routine or almost dusty, it doesn't seem to bring life. It seems to be old words. And so sometimes we'll try to jumpstart our, our interest in God's Word by signing up for a, a read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year program. Anybody tried that? <laughs> We've tried it, and I've done it. I've read through the Scripture numbers of years and find it rich, but I remember the first time I tried it again, I got to Leviticus or so, Deuteronomy, second law. I was like, second time? i got to do this again? And it's, you bog down. So there's something that we should be doing besides just reading. And Peter says in an imperative way, this is what you need to do. You need to crave this. You need to long for it. You need to desire this as much as a baby would desire milk. And that's where we say, well, wait a minute. How do I create longing? That feels, as a guy, more like an emotional kind of word. How do I decide to long for something? I mean, that'd be like telling me to, to crave or long for rooting for a team that I don't like. I can't do that. <laughs> How do you do that? How do you just convince yourself 
to do something you're not sure you know how to do or not sure you want to do. Well, Peter's convinced we can. He's convinced that in our head and in our heart, we can long for, crave that which brings us life. Unfortunately, much of the world around us craves what brings death, not life. So Peter says, long for this. Crave it. Let it get in you. Let it change you. It's an amazing word. There's a reason why he says it, though, and he explained that in verse 3. He says, crave this, long for this pure spiritual milk, which is the word of God, which is God's graciousness to us, as he puts it here, second part in verse 3, if indeed you have, been, you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Peter takes a quote out of the Psalms, this whole idea that you can taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who does that. And so if we taste and see that the Lord is good, and how do we do that? How have we done that? He says, if you've done this. Well, if you've come to faith in Christ, you have tasted and you have seen that the Lord is good. You have believed in him and you've been granted new life and it's changing you. So he says, if that's happened, guys, then we can long for what will bring us more fulfillment, more experience of that goodness, that kindness of God in our lives. Would anyone like to experience more of the kindness of God in your life? Well, yeah, most people in Christ, I hope, would. It's what we would long to do. We can do that by having a desire to know him and to know his word. You could say that this, spirit, this pure spiritual milk is the kind of things that, the kind of thing that nurtures us, like milk nurtures a baby. It not only helps us to have life, it's the thing that causes us to grow. Without God's word in our life speaking to us, we're not going to grow the way we should as believers. And we can find ourselves struggling for, through the very ailment that many of North American Christian man struggles through. And it's been called a number of things, but sometimes it's been called spiritual fatalism. And what I mean and what's been said by spiritual fatalism is the idea that we sometimes can get that I've reached a certain spiritual level or plateau and I really don't expect to get any higher. I'm not going to be like well, the guy I'm sitting next to at the men's breakfast or like Doug who's standing up front or like whoever's preaching, whoever's serving, whoever's doing whatever. I'm never going to get there. That's what we speak to ourselves. It's just not in me. Maybe I don't have the kind of interest they have in spiritual things. Maybe I don't have the kind of education about theological things. Maybe I don't have the knowledge of Scripture that they have. Maybe I don't seem to have the prayer life that they exhibit. Maybe I don't have a heart to serve the way they seem to. Maybe I don't have the longevity of being in the church to do that. We have all these things that we list are reasons why that we're never going to get above a certain level in a spiritual sense. Spiritual fatalism. It's the idea that I've grown enough my ticket is punched, I'm going to heaven, why should I worry about it? Now, I think God has a different idea about what spiritual growth looks like than that. God doesn't seem to put a cap on spiritual growth. It doesn't seem to me in Scripture. I mean, Doug mentioned last week what Peter says, we are to be holy. That's what you're called to. We're to be holy even as God is holy. That's pretty high cap. <laughs> that bar is pretty far up there. And God nowhere seems to say, yeah, the bar is up here, but if you just get here, that's fine. <laughs> You'll be good. Don't worry about it. Well, he doesn't say worry about it. Peter's not saying you should be worried if you feel like your bar is set way too low. 
Peter just says, set your bar up higher. Long for the spirit, pure spiritual milk of God's word. Long to grow up in him. Long to be more like him. Long to experience more of the kindness of God. Long to tap into the goodness of God. Trust the power of the word of God. Here's the key. Here's the way to grow, Peter says. The way to grow is through God's word. Now, I'm probably preaching to the choir. You guys are here for a men's Bible study at 7 in the morning. Most of you come for food, too. I understand that. But you've come for the Bible study. So you know the truth of this. But the reality is there are lots of guys, lots of men sitting in churches, even churches like the chapel, who are pretty satisfied for where they are spiritually. They don't want to be challenged to grow anymore. I'm fine the way I am, thank you. And part of the challenge of that could be that we have preached in America what what has been called the cheap grace gospel. The whole idea, if I just say a prayer, believe some truths about who Jesus is, I'm good to go. And that's, in a sense, not the gospel at all. The gospel involves the kingdom of God on the move, bringing his kingdom into the world, his rule, his reign, inviting us to be a part of it. In fact, giving us the kingdom itself. And so as we grow up into the kingdom, Peter's saying, keep growing, long for the word of God. Let it change you. Don't stop yet. Keep going. I talked to a wife not too long ago who was struggling in a relationship with her husband, and one of the things she said was this. said, he doesn't show any sign of spiritual interest. And when I ask him to go to church with me, and he hasn't been to church now in a year or so, he just says, "Eh, I'm not sure that's for me anymore. And when when I challenge him to think back how when we were first married 30 years ago, that we were, we were committed to Christ. We were going to walk together. He was going to be the spiritual head of the church. And he just says, well, you know, I said those things, but I'm not sure I really meant them at the time. Well, what's happened to this guy? Well, one thing for sure, he has stopped longing for the pure spiritual milk. He has stopped being in the Word of God. He has stopped opening up himself to let God's Word speak truth to him. That can happen. That's why Peter makes it an imperative statement. Never stop craving God's word. We need it in our lives. We have to have it to live. So what is this spiritual milk? It is the word of God, I think. I think that's what Peter is saying. But some of us think back, well, wait a minute. Didn't didn't the author of Hebrews say that we need to move beyond milk? Didn't he say something about we were stuck? Those, Those he was writing to were kind of stuck in this elementary spiritual life. And so he said, he says, move beyond the milk and start eating some meat. So what's the difference? Is there a contradiction here? Peter is saying, long for milk, and the author of Hebrews is saying, move on from milk and have some meat. And I think they're using the word differently. They're not talking the same talk. They're really saying the same thing. We need to move into God's word, into all of God's word, and let it impact us. We need to embrace it. We need to let it into our lives. This spiritual fatalism, this what I've also thought of as could be called spiritual arrested development, can happen to anybody. I have to say that it's ministers, it's pastors who are probably most susceptible to it. Because we have this temptation to think that if we have gone to seminary and earned a theological degree, which means we have spent some time with this book, a lot of time with it. It's become an academic book for us. We have studied it academically. 
that we have certain knowledge that sort of guarantees that we're in the inside group. In fact, I've known more than one pastor who never read the Word of God except to prepare a sermon, and when they preached, you weren't sure they read the Word of God anyway. It can happen. It happens to all of us, but ministers particularly can think, well, it's sort of like what Paul David Tripp, who's a, an author, psychologist, theologian kind of guy, says. He said, one of the biggest problems we have is that, that our, our head can learn things way faster than our hearts. So we can think we've got it up here and think, well, yeah, I know this stuff, and assume that we've mastered it, and then assume that, well, yeah, and it's in me. But the reality is that we can also put ourselves under God's Word and without opening ourselves and our hearts up to God's Word, without inviting the Spirit to indeed be in our life in a way that we understand the Word in a way we couldn't without Him and we can't without Him, that we can literally think ourselves into believing that we are more spiritually mature than we are. I mean, I, I have served a pastor once who, whose behavior would indicate and eventually his medical diagnosis was that he indeed suffered from arrested development, that he behaved in many ways, even though he was 50 years old, his actions looked like he was 15. And so when he went and got some advice, the advice was, you need to grow up. Well, he'd been a pastor by 50. He'd already been a pastor for 25 years. He said, well, I thought I was grown up. I don't want to grow up any more than this. And one of the things that had happened to him, and I've seen it happen, and I've experienced those spells in my life, he'd given up on this. He had stopped preaching from the Word of God and began to preach from sermons he got from books. It wasn't impacting him. It was hard to see it impacting anyone else. It can happen at the, at the pastor level. It can sure happen at any level. And guys, I think part of our challenge is that we don't fall into that trap to think that we've mastered something. Hey, I've read the Gospel of John four times now. What else do you want me to do? <laughs> well, maybe what God wants you to do is you stop thinking you've mastered the Gospel of John and you let the Gospel of John master you. You put yourself under what Jesus is saying in that and let him speak to you. I find it helpful for seasons when I'm sensing my spiritual dullness, my spiritual plateauing, my arrested development, to slow down and to go deeper into Scripture. And what I mean by that is to read smaller sections and really think about them more and let God just use it in my life. So maybe take a few verses at a time and think about them, read them several times in the morning. Let it impact me during the day. And then at the evening, go back and say, so what difference did this make? <laughs> did it impact me at all? Well, if Peter's right, you're going to be impacted. If you've tasted, if you've seen, if you've enjoyed, if you've experienced the very goodness, the kindness, the wonderful nature of who God is. Spiritual fatalism is tragic. Let me say these same verses again, this time reading them in another version, the J.B. Phillips translation, because it's a fresh way of saying it. This is a paraphrase really came out probably late 60s. 1 Peter 1, 1 to 3. Have done then with all evil and deceit, all pretense and jealousy and slander. Have done with that. You are babies, newborn in God's family, and you should be crying out for the unadulterated spiritual milk. 
to make you grow up to salvation. And so you will, if you have already tasted the goodness of the Lord. So let the the word of God dwell in you richly, is what Scripture says. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. That's what Paul would encourage the church. Peter's just simply saying this, guys. Decide today to long for God's word. Decide today. You can decide this. To have a craving in your life. To spend time with God in his word. Listening to him speak to you through it. And as you do that, understand that it will begin to change you. But don't expect that you'll master it. And don't think that after a few days, I'm good to go. Long for it continually. Ongoing. Like a baby continues every day, every night, wants the same milk over and over again in order to grow up. Long for that. And as you do so, notice that you will change and other people will see it. So as we close, let me ask you these questions. What's your response to God's word? What's your personal response? Do you crave it with a hunger, the same kind of hunger that a newborn baby has for milk? Or have you found yourself to become a little bit indifferent to it? thinking that your study of Scripture really doesn't contribute that much to your life, even to your Christian maturity. If so, go before the Lord today. Ask Him to increase your hunger and thirst for His Word. Ask Him to make Himself known through it. My understanding of God is this. When we ask that kind of prayer, guess what? He will answer. He loves to answer it that way. Have a great day.